Um, my name is Maria Gabrielson Jumbert. I'm a senior researcher and research director here at PRIO and also a co-director of the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies, also co-hosting this, uh, this seminar. Um, so we... Um, and we're very happy to see so many uh, showing up for this uh, seminar on, on, on many timely, timely issues. I will introduce our um, panelists in, in a minute after some introductory uh, remarks. As um, many of you know, over 5 million people, the bulk of them women and children, uh, reportedly close to 90%, have fled Ukraine since the war began. And most of them to countries bordering Ukraine on the west. On March 4th, the Council of the European Union activated the 2001 Temporary Protection Directive. This allows citizens and long-term residents from Ukraine a temporary re residence permit in the European Union for at least a year, with the possibility of renewal for up to two years. Uh, it allows them to travel freely within the EU and to apply for uh, temporary protection in the country that they uh, choose. In this first reception phase that we have seen since uh, the invasion of uh, Ukraine, uh, we have seen a great number of volunteers, citizens, grassroots initiatives, uh, just regular neighbors uh, mobilizing to uh, provide assistance to the refugees fleeing uh, Ukraine. They have provided cru crucial support in this first phase, providing accommodation, uh, transport, networks, access perhaps to a first uh, job or first orientation in a new country. Um, and alongside this solidarity of civil uh, society actors, um, and potentially maybe taking benefit of the, the chaos that appears or the, the, the lack of organized processes in this first uh, phase, uh, a risk has emerged in the form of exploitation or perhaps uh, human trafficking that may target uh, highly vulnerable people. Sorry. Um, Poland has received, as you may know, the large majority of refugees, more than 3 million in just over a two-month period, followed by Romania, Russia, Hungary, the Republic of Moldova, Slovakia, and Belarus. An estimated 1.8 million of these have moved onwards to other European uh, countries. Um, and although there is insufficient information as, at this stage, maybe we will hear more during this uh, panel today, there are... Uh, first signals about requests for support by potentially victims of human trafficking. Received by, for instance, La Strada International Member Organizations and the IOM. Uh, likewise, Europol and Frontex also warn about uh, criminal actors operating in the area, uh, and the UN ODC uh, warns about long-standing uh, networks in the area uh, operating. And creating uh, potential victims for human trafficking. Um, and, and among, also just to mention on the, on the other side, among the, the, there have been a number of civil society initiatives, uh, from the spontaneous to the more organized uh, uh, initiatives. I uh, just wanted to, to bring up one example uh, developed by uh, two Harvard students uh, called Ukraine Take Shelter. Uh, connecting hosts in Poland with potential refugees seeking, uh, seeking shelter. Um, 
and here the, the, there are some security measures, though, so those providing uh, accommodation need to provide an ID to register as potential hosts. And uh, the refugees are also uh, informed that they are uh, ultimately responsible for their own safety. At the same time, these sort of uh, spontaneous initiatives set up online have also been, um, been um, warned against because they might constitute an, an easy platform for those who want to exploit the, these networks and then provide and, and use these uh, seemingly grassroots initiative as a way to, to uh, find uh, potentially vulnerable uh, persons. In this panel, I'm very happy to have a range of different experts working on these topics from different sites. And looking forward to hearing your insights and how you also approach uh, several of these, um, these questions. To begin with, we have uh, Eddie Moyai, a senior advisor for the Task Force Against Trafficking in Human Beings for the Council of the Baltic Sea States. And you're here in Oslo on the occasion of a meeting on this topic uh, and on the occasion of uh, Norway having the presidency in the CBSS. So welcome to you. After you, we have Gudi Tildum, a researcher colleague, a researcher at Fafo, another research institute, just five minutes down uh, in the neighborhood here, um, an expert also on uh, to topics of migration, uh, human trafficking, and also knowing this region uh, well. So we're looking forward to hearing your insights also from a migration research perspective. Uh, after uh, your introductions and the initial discussion, uh, we will give the word to um, Despina Johansson, um, Director of Operations for Dropnehava, a civil society organization or organizing volunteers traveling either to Greece or now also recently to, to Poland to assist uh, refugees. Uh, after you, we will have uh, Jan Austad from the Norwegian Ministry of Justice, also sharing uh, with us both your work towards uh, the CBSS, the Council of the Baltic Sea States, but also how you, from, from Norway's point of view, collaborate with neighboring countries in this area. So looking forward to hearing your uh, insights there uh, as well. F uh, finally, we have Ms. Fatou Diallo Ndeaye, uh, Chief of Mission for IOM Norway, who will also share uh, insights and your, about your work with uh, IOM. Um, but then to, to begin with, um, Eddie Moyai, can you start with uh, sharing with us what are the main challenges that you are working with now uh, and uh, perhaps what are your, um, the key measures that you are uh, working on together with the neighbouring countries these days? Yes, thank you. Uh, I would also like to start by thanking the Polish, uh, the Embassy of Poland in Norway and also Prio for taking the lead and organizing this very timely event today. Uh, timely specifically, of course, in light of the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, and the direct impact this has first and foremost in the shape of increased sexual violence and human trafficking uh, affecting uh, those Ukrainians fleeing Ukraine at the moment. Uh, but also the impact the current war and situation and you know humanitarian crisis has on our societies as such, because human trafficking and it's important to state is um, a threat against uh, the individuals, but the state as well, uh, and the way we're used to uh, our you know institutions and societies uh, functioning. 
Very briefly, I won't go into a presentation about the CBSS, but I want to mention that we are an intergovernmental organization uh, consisting of 10 member states, cooperating and facilitating cooperation on different topics that are relevant to the citizens of the Baltic Sea region, and one of those topics is human trafficking, and that's the unit uh, I'm working with. Um, and we conduct several initiatives uh, which in different ways relate to or are re relevant to the humanitarian crisis in U Ukraine. We conduct international projects uh, in close cooperation with our member states. We have an expert group consisting of one representative from each member state. And as you mentioned, Norway and the Ministry of Justice has the presidency of our task force at the moment. Um, we saw, we met yesterday and today, and I could just raise that. We saw how the Ukraine humanitarian crisis in this, uh, our task force enabled a direct exchange of information between the states and institutions, specifically on the topic, something most states realized very early on when this started was that we need to target those fleeing into our countries, crossing the border with information, comprehensive but, you know, relatable information on the risks of human trafficking. Uh, do not give your passport to strangers. Uh, don't hop into, tr you know, transportation and cars with people you don't, do not know and so on specifically knowing that a great majority of the refugees uh, were and are women and children. So uh, targeting refugees with information, this was, I think, uh, one of the first kind of issues that our member states exchange information about. Poland, for example, many we realize today that many of our member states uh, use the structure in the leaflets, for example, produced by Poland, which might sound like a small aspect, but, you know, it, it needs to go quick when we are in a humanitarian, humanitarian crisis uh, like the one we're witnessing at the moment. But concretely, international projects that we are working on relating to Ukraine, we are, uh, the CBSS is in cooperation with the Swedish Gender Equality Agency in Sweden, who functions as the government's national coordinator against human trafficking and prostitution. We are together with them. We have teamed up to develop an international awareness raising campaign, which will be launched in the fall uh, with a quite a substantial budget, I would say. Uh, and the purpose is to target mainly Ukrainian refugees and labor migrants uh, in the Baltic Sea region, informing and warning them about the very real risks of human trafficking for labor exploitation. So this is kind of one of the key priorities we have at the moment. Um, secondly, we also have um, uh, we're d d updating a handbook on a handbook for diplomatic, consular, and migration staff in the context of human trafficking. Uh, this is something we developed 10 years ago, and we saw it, uh, we saw it as relevant to update it again because it's, uh, it's very timely at the moment. And we also have developed something I'm very proud of, which is a, it's called a transnational referral mechanism. It's a very complex word, but it's something actually very concrete. And it is a very structured uh, chain, you might say, that uh, clearly states which agency has the responsibility of referring victims of trafficking at which stage of the process. So we have described this uh, structure in a very accessible way um, uh, in all our member states. So these are the main kind of contributions that we are looking at into uh, at the moment, uh, either developing them, for, developing them from the beginning or perfecting them uh, so that they are relevant to the situation. I uh, also would like to mention uh, very shortly, speak, I, I, I compliment you also for bringing up the topic of volunteers and volunteer organizations uh, in this 
in times of crisis and in this war, um, we see that there's a huge, huge numbers of volunteers engaged uh, at the moment. Many people are witnessing what's happening in Ukraine and, of course, want to be at the border or at different reception centers and contributing somehow. And this is, of course, very, you know, this is something positive. Uh, but in this kind of chaotic situation, we also know from previous uh, armed conflicts and wars that there is also room for questionable individuals who have other purposes than to assist the victims. Um, very shortly, I was in Warsaw by coincidence very early in March uh, attending this workshop. And um, apparently the hotel I was staying at in the middle of Warsaw was a gathering point for Ukrainian children and women, refugees, um, being transported to a, uh, to a Nordic country. And uh, it was quite a chaotic scene. The hotel was generous enough to uh, turn the lobby into kind of a, you know, hangout space for these refugees. They could sleep in the lobby and stay there over the night. But what I also saw was uh, many, many volunteers and also this volunteer organization that, you know, I understood their language uh, and I approached them and asked, who are you? What do you work with? And I had never heard of them. Uh, and uh, they explained what they're doing and they said, we have so far transported three or 4,000 refugees to, you know, our country. Mm. And I asked, are you coordinating this in any way with you know, the institutions? And they said, no, the institutions never do anything, more or less. And I also looked them up on social media. And that was very problematic because there were a ton of pictures and films of these children they were assisting, waving to the camera, thanking them for their help and so on. Now, this was a very negative example, but this is my point that there needs to be an increased and closer coordination because... Again, I really want to stress out volunteer organizations and NGOs are crucial in times of crisis because they, you know, take the lead when the institutions do not always, you know. And this is something I reflected on also. Who am I also to have this elitist, you know, view on their work when the institutions were in fact not present, even though thousands of refugees were, you know. So uh, I would say that this is one of the challenges we need to look at the moment, uh, and uh, I would also like to flag that we see indications of direct human trafficking cases related to Ukrainians being exploited in our region. Many of these examples are indications, but uh, I will, if there's opportunity later, also mention some of the cases that we are seeing. And also that there is a balance between not being sensationalist and calling everything human trafficking, because it's so high up on the political agenda now but to also, you know, call it for what it, what it is when we see it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. thanks. Thank Thank you very much for this uh, very good introduction and setting the stage on the current situation. And it also actually leads uh, well over to, uh, to Gudi's um, yeah, uh, work in this area. Could you perhaps say a little bit more from, from a migration research perspective, how we understand precisely what is human trafficking and what are perhaps uh, other things along a, longer, uh, a broader scale of what we can more broadly call exploitation? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and also very happy to be in a setting where you actually have real-life people again. That's uh, very nice uh, to be. I have written about human trafficking in numerous different contexts for, for, uh, in relation to trafficking for prostitution and marriage and begging and uh, labor migration, uh, mainly from Eastern Europe. Uh, and as a migration researcher, I'm a little bit ambivalent to the use of the contents, uh, the concept. Uh, 
I think it brings up a very important perspective and importantly, not the least because it has brought up legislation that has been very important for prosecuting people that are exploiting migrants in a very vulnerable uh, situation. But I also would like to kind of mention the little caution that it's very often also used to control and limit opportunities for migration and opportunities that migrants actually have rather than actually protecting them. And that's kind of an awareness we have to have when we talk about human trafficking in various contexts. What I like about the human trafficking concepts and the literature on human trafficking is that it brings attention to the vulnerabilities that are inherent to the migration process in itself. When people migrate, they come to a place where they don't have networks, they don't have family or friends, very often they don't know the language, so they can't communicate with people and ask for help. Um, they don't even know where to go for help very often, they don't know the informal rules, sometimes they don't even know the formal rules, they don't know their rights. And all of this creates vulnerabilities that external agents can exploit. And that's kind of the key to what human trafficking is. And it's important to have understanding these mechanisms and how they work. Some migrant groups are more vulnerable than others, uh, depending on what kind of resources they have, language skills, what kind of information they have available, and what kind of rights they have. Uh, and people who flee in a hurry uh, leaving money and resources behind are particularly vulnerable because they are dependent on help from others very often. And people that are dependent on strangers for help, either it is because they need somebody to pay for their travels, they need somebody to help them find housing, they need somebody to help them find a job or income sources, are particularly vulnerable. And of course, this is typical for the refugees. So, the human trafficking literature has bringing awareness to these mechanisms and also have brought legislation that clarifies that exploiting these vulnerabilities is a crime in itself, kind of makes it even worse if you exploit people who are in that kind of vulnerable situation. But there is also the risk that kind of having foc focusing on human trafficking is then used as an argument for lim limiting opportunities for migrating and also for removing the people that actually help people migrating. We've all heard how sometimes human trafficking and human smuggling is used interchangeable uh, in debates about migration, arguing that everybody who assists migrants are traffickers. Uh, and as this situation has, as you talked about, you know, the, the refugees are have been able to leave Ukraine very smoothly because of all of these volunteers mm. that actually go in there and help them. And if we put in legislation and systems that remove the opportunities for volunteers to assist, we also remove the opportunities to flee. Mm. So we have to be cautious about how we approach this. Um, so what we have need to think is how can we reduce the risk of exploitation without removing the helpers? is the way we have to think. And I believe that the answer is to give the migrants information, but not necessarily information about trafficking, because Ukrainians know perfectly well that there are bad people out there. And I don't think there is any population in the world that has been subject to more anti-trafficking campaigns than the Ukrainian population. There has been trafficking, anti-trafficking campaigns constantly since the 80s. Uh, what you need is information about safe options. 
uh, and rights and opportunities uh, that they have. Um, telling them that, as you said, not to jump into cars with strangers, but lots of people have actually been saved jumping into cars with strangers. Uh, but what we probably should is guide them to places where they can take safe cars. And I've been told that the Polish government is right now doing a great job of putting up information sites for onward mobility, for refugees that are in the closed area uh, and want to move on to other places and systematizing the information that the refugees need in order to move on to safe places. And those kind of arrangements, I think, is a great step in the right direction uh, for um, protecting the migrants. And similarly, we need to think, if refugees are offered private housings, as they are in many countries in Europe today, um, creates great vulnerabilities, yes, uh, and then, but it can also cre create great opportunities. However, the refugees need to know that Uh, what is expected of them if they live in a private house. Are they supposed to clean and help? Are they supposed to offer sexual services? And if they are asked to offer any kind of services, where can they go? And they need to be able to leave kind of quickly. So they need to know the rights and they need to know where to go. So giving that kind of information, also giving real opportunities of actually escaping a situation of exploitation is key. Uh, So my point is, uh, vulnerability to trafficking does not mainly come from the presence of traffickers and bad people. We don't, but it comes from lack of alternatives uh, or options, uh, often for accepting uh, exploitation and abuse for the migrants. Um, very often in the trafficking public uh, discussions of human trafficking, Trafficking victims are portrayed as, in a way, innocent victims that are lured, manipulated, or even forced into situations of, expo uh, situations of expo exploitation. In reality, very often, it is migrants who take a calculated risk, and they realize that this is, might not go well, but they don't really have alternatives to choose from. So they go into a situation of high risk um, because there are no other alternatives there. Um, so um, yeah so a safe way then um, and for some people for instance in the situation where you're fleeing a war uh, going in would open eyes into a situation where you know there will be some exploitation in the other end can actually be a wise choice uh, for the migrants uh, in that situation so Vulnerability to exploitation is inevitable in the refugee population. However, exploitation can be avoided if you have safe options for travel, safe options for, for lodging and opportunities for income earning. Uh, but the solution is not to limit the helpers that actually do go in and assist them. Uh, I think I will end it with that. Yes. Thank you very much, Gudi, also highlighting how these things are, are, are connected and then And, and how these situations of vulnerability also appear with the lack of, of alternatives, as you show us. Uh, Eddie, I think you wanted to respond to, to or, or to react to some of these things. How would you then say that we can uh, continue to help the refugees uh, without removing the helpers? Yeah, I wish I had that answer. But uh, I, I uh, first would like to just say you have a very... Uh, valid points but it's something that you know crossed my mind is also the issue of incentives 
I, my impression is not in our member states that professionals meeting, practitioners meeting these victims are under the impression that they, that they are weak individuals who are very easily tricked and so on. I think the incentive is the key word here, and the incentive is um, wanting a better life, and not only supporting yourself, but supporting somebody at home. And this we see, we are already starting to see with Ukrainians arriving, the first wave of refugees, uh, they're saved money, basically, that they brought with them when they left the country. They're running out of them, as, you know, is the case during a war. And I totally agree that providing them with alternatives, we know today that very often, especially if you're a non-EU migrant, uh, one of the few ways of being able to remain in the country of destination is to cooperate with the law enforcement and so on. Uh, so I, I very much um, share your view there, but I really think that the key word here is in incentives. Um, people are willing to take a, l a lot of abuse and exploitation, even though this is nothing they expected uh, beforehand when, for example, agreeing to this job opportunity if they know that they have uh, somebody to support at home. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I agree with most of your points in that sense. Uh, Gudi, a follow-up question to you. As some of the um, all refugees fleeing are, are vulnerable, as, as you rightly also point out. Uh, in the context of, uh, of residents of Ukraine uh, being granted um, a temporary protection in Europe, there are also, uh, as I've understood it, it's for uh, Ukrainian nationals and long-term residents in Ukraine. So some other residents of other nationalities uh, do not have uh, access to, to this, uh, at least not automatically. And may, uh, and these include uh, residents from, for instance, uh, India, Russia, Uzbekistan, Bangladesh, uh, Congo, Nigeria, uh, among others. Um, and, and they might be more vulnerable uh, in the sense of uh, uh, feeling that they are more dependent on, on facilitators or smugglers to, to leave Ukraine or to enter uh, or move on to other countries. And just to connect this, uh, uh, um, this point with uh, what you say about providing uh, the refugees with uh, safe options and providing them about, of, with information about where, uh, what, what their rights are, where they can find other safe places. And um, yes, so, so, this, so my question is mainly around this, how do we think around this provision of information in a context that can be more or less organized or more or less chaotic? And how do we reach out to different people, some, some uh, yeah, who will um, be reached in different ways, in, in, in different languages also, for instance? Um, I think you have a very important point there. Um, as I said, one of the key advantages, I think, for the Ukrainian refugees coming into Europe now is that they have this collective protection that gives them, kind of, they give them rights immediately. And it's so much more easy to help people when they have rights. So for the large part, the main key is to give, once they're in Europe, it's mainly about informing them about where to go to access their rights. And then, of course, there have been debates like in Norway that the quality of the assistance they get is so bad that they have to go out and earn money on the side. And it could, could probably be the same uh, kind of the, the way we're receiving the refugees. But at, but at least they will get a basic substance uh, immediately once they have. It is much more challenging to help migrants that don't have any rights. Uh, so basically they will only get rights once they are victims of trafficking. Uh, so before they are victims of trafficking, um, it is 
and that's one of the dilemmas uh, we see in the trafficking literature. Uh, one of the key is that sometimes what we define as exploitation is the only way, kind of accepting exploitative working conditions uh, and abuse and or some of the things I've been living with a man that abuses you is maybe the only way of making a living and remaining in the situation where you don't have labor rights and you don't have a residency. Mm. Um, so, yeah, uh, you need to have rights in order to access them, basically. Yes. yes. And then, then we could think of, yeah, uh, that's, that's, that is a good, a good point. So how, when is that breaking point where they are actually victims of something where that gives them these rights? And then what are the, yeah, of course, the other basic human rights that, that they also, yeah. And, and the question of how, how to reach different, uh, different uh, populations. Do, do you have uh, any thoughts on sort of what are the best ways to communicate with, the, with people in this situation? This may, may not be something you have worked on specifically. Before. If they have rights, uh, it yeah. is... Uh, through those channels. It, it is through those channels. However, yeah. the most vulnerable groups are the ones that are least able to access rights mm. and access information. And also, you will see that actors that are intent on exploiting uh, migrants tend to isolate them kind of you, they will put them in situations and contexts where they are less able to access rights mm. uh, depending on of course different levels of exploitation and abuse but at, at least in the in the worst cases of human trafficking uh, police intervention is basically what we need and and kind of looking at and going in because people will be isolated in some settings um, especially also if they if they don't speak the language if they only know Ukrainian and if they are taken into a house of somebody in the countryside in Norway and are uh, help kind of and don't speak to other Ukrainians, of course it will be difficult to access them. However, in a setting where you have so many Ukrainians migrating at the same time and when you have social media, it is more challenging this particular mig migrant group yeah. to isolate them, I would think. Uh, it is more of a challenge for isolated individuals coming from, uh, say, Thailand or... Uh, more, more traveling individually. Traveling individually and coming here and not knowing anybody else. It's yeah. much easier to isolate them than it would be in a setting yeah. of mass migration as we are witnessing now, I would assume. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Before we move on, Eddie, you wanted to follow up on yeah, just this quick, point perhaps. Yes, yeah. but also speak of vulnerabilities. Yeah. And I understand this is not, or I assume, you're, what you mean. But isolation is not kind of a... Um, doesn't need to be in the picture for somebody to be in an extreme vulnerable situation. But I wanted to refer to what you said earlier and what you asked about how we communicate to this target group. What we are seeing very much of in all member states of the CBSS at least, and this is something touched uh, or discussed also internationally uh, within the EU by the OEC and so on, is the issue of demand, that mm. there is also the organized crime groups mm. facilitating the you know, hardcore trafficking uh, for sexual and labor exploitation. We see that uh, there is a huge demand at the moment uh, for um, exploiting Ukrainian mm. citizens, mm. women primarily uh, in the, for example, sex industry. Uh, we've seen examples through the days today that we had the exchange with our member states. Um, 
Ukrainian women, for example, in some Nordic countries are advertised and marketed as, you know, fresh new Ukrainian women, uh, knowing, of course, that uh, the uh, target group of this information are men wanting to purchase sexual services who uh, in some way are attracted by the fact that this person may be extra vulnerable. So from a kind of institutional point of view, uh, which, you know, of course, I am in some sense a part of, we see a huge demand for uh, this group. So I would just like, based on your very extensive ex- um, experience, what would you suggest, would you say that, you know, um, institutions, organizations should not comment um, on the fact that there's a risk with, you know, joining strangers and getting into the cars and so on, or... I think when we what uh, what they need is information about safe ways of getting out. And if there are no safe ways of getting out, um, I don't know if we should warn them about about getting into cars with with strangers, uh, because most strangers are good people, uh, and having trust in kind of having the trust in people helping you. And in the situation like people fleeing war, uh, and also traveling myself through the years uh, I've gone a long way by being a being in a situation where you can trust people to help you and people mostly help you and that also goes the same thing for refugees and so warning them about taking the help of a stranger is um, and I don't know if even if it works because most of the victims of trafficking I've interviewed have seen these advertisements about trafficking themselves and they, as I said they take a calculated risk risk knowing what they get themselves into in this situation so so yes now i i don't think that there is much point in having that kind of advertisements uh, but focusing on giving people information about what is safe ways uh, what they should think about what they should bring maybe to be not to travel alone if you can or uh, whatever safe yeah for this is a group that actually can have safe travels as opposed to Uh, irregular migrants, where there are very few channels of safe migration, where it's difficult to give advice of safe migration. For these refugees, they actually have access to rights and they can actually enter. There are channels for safe migration. So to focus on that. Um, I would um, also, there's a tendency when we talk of human trafficking that we focus on prostitution. I think when we talk about Ukrainian refugees, we should be at least equally aware of domestic servitude. Uh, as a problem because of the people being put in private housing uh, and kind of the abuse that you can be subject to put in private housing uh, and also labor exploitation. People, actors that actually think they're going to help, they want to help, but have no idea about what labor laws are and how to treat people decently and end up exploiting the migrants instead of offering proper jobs. Against these very uh, useful remarks uh, from from you both, I think we'll now have a little of a transition in the panel. Uh, and on this occasion, if uh, while we shift microphones around and shift some places around, uh, if you want to have a coffee or refill of coffee or tea, don't hesitate. Thank you so much. Yes. So while you find your your seats again, thank you very much to uh, uh, Guri and Eddie for these. 
this opening exchange and highlighting many of these uh, difficult questions that we have to grapple with and, and a lot of the, the gradual, in a way, uh, transitions between uh, outright uh, exploitation and, and trafficking and, and other situations that, that gradually um, may become one. I will start with you, uh, Despina Johansson, uh, working with Drop and Nihave. So, as a little bit of, of background, your organization was established in 2015 um, to uh, organize, in a way, the, the, the number of volunteers who traveled to Greece to help out uh, refugees arriving, refugees and other migrants arriving on the Greek islands. Uh, seeing that many, many were, were willing to help and wanted to do something, um, your colleague, um, uh, uh, took the initiative of creating a drop in the ocean, as the name is uh, translated to in English, uh, with this idea that ev every drop counts in, in a way, that, uh, that uh, uh, every act of, of help uh, uh, helps in this situation. And you have become a, a large organization since, still continuing to, to um, uh, recruit volunteers to help out, both in Greece and now since uh, in the last few months, also uh, establishing an operation in uh, or. Yes, an operation in, in Warsaw, in, in Poland, as well as, uh, as a center. You'll just tell us more about this uh, right now, in, in, as well as in Oslo. But could you start by telling us a little bit, uh, against the background of these, these, these dilemmas that were highlighted now in this first part of the discussion, how do you, as an organization recruiting volunteers, how do you relate to, to these dilemmas, and uh, both from your experience in Greece, but perhaps also now recently? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. First of all, thank you for the invitation and thank you for organizing this seminar. It's very timely, as uh, we said before. Uh, and definitely just I would like to make three general remarks before I talk a little bit more about mm. our organization. Uh, also, having heard what, what we heard before with this very interesting discussion, that uh, human trafficking and exploitation indeed is a problem always, mm. but now it's even more. Mm. Having this massive uh, refugee wave in Europe of millions of people fleeing, uh, as was mentioned, 3.2 million in Poland only. Uh, so this has massive numbers that we haven't seen before, not even with the crisis in Greece back in 2015. Um, and also, these are vulnerable people, 90%, as we know, it's women and children, and a minority is men, of course, and mostly elderly mm. men. So this already makes the issue very prominent and a huge risk, exactly because, as we know from statistics, it's uh, out of the ten victims, seven are women, mm. five are uh, women, and two mm. are girls. Mm. And also more than half of them have a background of migrant or refugee. So this tells us that we should be extra careful about the situation, uh, which is very evident the risk, and we all should be aware of this. But there are things that were already mentioned here that I don't know how well we're connected now with these facts and figures. And it is what you said, uh, the directive of the EU being put in place, that means temporary protection. And definitely various organizations have issued guidance now because of the situation. It's UNODC, it's Greta from the Council of Euro highlighting the risks. But the thing is that the major risk of, is of these people not having legal entry and mm. legal status 
in the country mm -hmm. to go to. Mm -hmm. So this risk has already been dealt with, and mm -hmm. I think we all should be very proud of this, mm -hmm. uh, that was this quick mobilization, mm -hmm. and this was accepted very quickly. So we are not talking about regular migrants and refugees that we had in other occasions, mm -hmm. but we are talking about protected people by mm -hmm. the law. And this already diminishes the risk uh, to a huge extent, because again, as statistics show, it is the it is the undocumented migrants that usually have the problems that we talked about of exploitation, human trafficking, and all the rest. So I think there is already great ground covered, but definitely there is a lot more to do. And a general other remark is that we should definitely not associate voluntarism and volunteers with exploitation or human trafficking. It's uh, not related, and it actually it is related in uh, an opposite way. In most of the cases that have gone, have been prosecuted or have been judged, uh, there were actually volunteers and NGOs that brought uh, uh, cases to the attention of the authorities. So we have a different aspect that probably sometimes it's not highlighted, and it should be. Uh, so starting with uh, voluntary organizations, uh, Indeed, we are dropping in Hava, Norwegian organization since 2015, operating in three countries now, Greece, Poland, and Bosnia-Herzegovina. And everything started also for us by an individual who is now our secretary general, Trude Jakobsen, who went by herself in Greece on Lesbos to help when we had the, the migration and refugee crisis of 2015. Uh, so this is how it all started, and we have turned now into an organization uh, which is two-thirds volunteers and then also employees. And we have mobilized throughout this year, seven years, more than 7,000 volunteers from all over the world. Uh, so going to Poland, of course, we saw that early on there was a need. Uh, we traveled the 28th of February uh, along with other colleagues that could do a needs assessment because this is the best way to start something. Uh, and then we realized that the needs were uh, great. Uh, definitely, we I have to say here, we admired and uh, uh, the mobilization of the Polish authorities and the Polish population, the local population, and the NGOs. And in close contact with our local partners, we established a project in Krakow, uh, which we don't know exactly the number of Ukrainian and people fleeing Ukraine there, but we calculate around 150,000 people. Probably the Polish embassy has more information on that. Uh, still, it's uh, a great number, close to the borders, as you know. Uh, so there, with our volunteers that uh, are supporting uh, the local organization, our local partner, uh, we have uh, what we call a free shop, a uh, goodwill wardrobe, it's called. Uh, it's the huge biggest actually in Poland of uh, 4,000 square meters, uh, where uh, people fleeing Ukraine can come and uh, shop for free, of course, uh, everything that they need, uh, clothes, uh, um, underwear, everything that is, of course, very needed and they couldn't afford. And this is run by volunteers, both local and our volunteers in a great cooperation, uh, unproblematic uh, cooperation and action. Uh, and it's very crucial because uh, there was not so much experience uh, with uh, logistics. This is what we had to offer because of our experience in Greece and in Bosnia-Herzegovina. So we provided the logistic support for all these projects because I'm sure you all have seen the mass amount uh, of uh, clothes, 
uh, you've seen pictures, I'm sure. So there was no problem with donations. Uh, but then who sorts out these donations? Who puts them in place and offers them in a dignified manner to the refugees? So we had to do this, and we are very pleased that we can offer like that. Uh, and it's a project that is continuing. It has 1,000 beneficiaries per day that visit this uh, free shop. Uh, and, uh, of course, there are many items uh, that we provide, and the donations keep coming in, and we do all this work with our logistics coordinators and our volunteers. Um, having said that, I do re remember from the previous discussion that uh, there needs to be some control of the volunteers and of the work that they do. And to our view, this control has a very much to do with definitely registrations, but also with internal procedures of the organizations, how they recruit their volunteers and how they manage their volunteers. And I think these are the key measures we can discuss on our side, and we can provide information on these. Uh, because recruitment, somebody can say, okay, you fill in an Excel form, you're, uh, you know, you have time to volunteer from that period, you can go and volunteer. No, it's not like that. We have uh, four crucial steps before somebody goes uh, to any of our operations. And this is definitely an application, definitely a background check, definitely asking for a clean criminal record. Then going through a detailed interview that we clarify the motivation and the qualification of the candidate. And of course, afterwards, signing a code of conduct and guidelines that they are needed on the ground, including safeguarding guidelines, of course, for children, uh, for how you uh, um, correlate with the refugees and all of that. And it's not only that. Of course, we continue with the volunteer management, as we call it. So definitely before somebody goes on the ground, there are pre-arrival sessions, like induction and training. And of course, when they arrive on the ground, there are other sessions as well with our coordinators. And of course, coordinators always supervise the volunteers. They are not left alone. They wear badges so they can be uh, identified. Uh, and uh, all of these, they might uh, uh, seem simple things, but they might make the difference when you have uh, others uh, volunteering that don't have all of this. Uh, definitely, we also provide uh, trainings that have to do also with human trafficking, and uh, we keep uh, them, you know, on a daily basis, aware that if uh, they see something suspicious, something that it's not ordinary, they should report it. Uh, we report it to the police when something is not right. Uh, and everybody is uh, aware and knows what they do while they volunteer with us. Mm -hmm. So on my side, that's the best piece of advice, uh, according to the best practices that we have developed, mm -hmm. uh, along, of course, with everything else that is happening. It's very important, as I said, with the legal entry, the legal status. And then, of course, uh, this uh, means... Uh, that uh, the countries are providing now employment, uh, schooling, which is happening already in Poland, accommodation, transportation. Where we work, there are these leaflets about anti-trafficking, definitely. It's also important to see it on paper, to have some advice on paper. Uh, so this matters. Uh, but there are many, many other aspects, of course, go beyond a project, beyond what we do now, that uh, are taken well care of. Accommodation, transportation, there are accredited offices that you can rely on these things. Um, and there are safeguards, definitely, for uh, the situation of these people. One little point for a discussion that was made earlier about the, the refugees who are not citizens of Ukraine. 
there is provision for them, uh, at least in Poland, and this is very, very important. Uh, there is, uh, the, the rule is that if they cannot return to their country, this provision is given. So I'm sure there are some uh, interviews with them, uh, and from our experience, uh, there is provision for these people as well. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Despina, for, for sharing with us how you also work with, with organizing this in the, both preparing uh, ahead of someone going uh, to, to the field in a way and, and, and how you also organize it uh, in, your dif in the different locations. Um, I'll now move on to you, uh, Jan Eustad. Can you uh, share with us um, a few weeks ago the Norwegian government had to explicitly um, discourage or uh, ask uh, citizens to not uh, provide um, or organize private transportation for ref uh, refugees fleeing Ukraine uh, because against the background of this needing to be organized by, by authorities. Uh, so, so departing from this very, very concrete situation, can you t tell us a little bit more about how you work with these questions in the current context from the Norwegian authorities' uh, position, and perhaps also in, in the context now of um, uh, co cooperating with the neighboring countries, uh, and for instance with uh, the Council of the Baltic Sea States. Thank you. Certainly, I'll, I'll do my best anyway. There are so many uh, people who have said so much sensible already, so it's difficult to, to uh, uh, add something new. Uh, I work on trafficking issues uh, in the Ministry of Justice uh, with Norwegian efforts against trafficking in Norway, but also then uh, on the international level. Um, and I've been um, uh, working, for instance, with uh, granting uh, uh, money for the Norwegian projects uh, for internal assistance to victims of trafficking in Norway. And a large amount of that money goes to uh, organizations, private organizations, uh, using volunteers on a, on a fairly large scale. And one of the main concerns for us when we uh, grant money for various organizations is to see how are they using the volunteers? How are they recruiting them? Um, how do they control them? Do they have a critical approach to the volunteers they are using? And we end up uh, dealing most of the money to uh, the established large humanitarian organizations in Norway. So your neighbors in the Red Cross, the, the church uh, uh, aid uh, system, all these organizations, they have uh, valid and uh, well-proven and critical approaches to, to uh, volunteers. They use them, and we're interested in the use of volunteers for many reasons, uh, but, uh, but we need a very critical approach to that. Um, uh, let me just add uh, as well, thank you so much to the Polish ambassador for the initiative here and to, to the Peace Research Institute. Um, I was confused uh, by this huge wave of refugees to Norway and Europe. And that was because, uh, in my experience, I had been already, uh, already knew about the exploitation of Ukrainians in both Norway and in other countries in Europe, both in sexual exploitation and not in the least uh, male, male workers in, in construction or agriculture in, in various countries. So I had this sort of uh, knowledge about Ukrainians that they were uh, an exploited people in certain uh, countries and under certain circum circumstances. 
When this huge wave came, uh, we at the same time very rapidly received warnings from our international partners, from all the organizations, uh, EU, Council of Europe, as mentioned, um, all producing the same message was the vulnerable people and, uh, and uh, the risk of exploitation for trafficking was, was huge. And I'm not so sure. I'm, I mean, I follow Guri in, in some ways. Um, this is a totally new group of people coming to our country. Um, and we need to settle down also to understand who they are. Uh, they could be, uh, the women and children coming to Norway could be, to a vast amount, very strong and independent women with no intention of being exploited in Norway or letting their children be exploited. But the numbers in themselves uh, indicate that there will be a certain percentage that will be vulnerable. But I think it's important to remember it's not this, it, you know, we are not receiving thousands and thousands of people who are at high risk of becoming trafficked. That's, that's absolutely not the case because they are, uh, they have not been traumatized for long. They have been traumatized very heavily by war in their country. But it's not for many, it's just a few days since they were in their home country and they have friends, they have networks, they have social media. Uh, so information spreads and they are not all in the same position of vulnerability. I think we have to look, I'm looking forward to more research on, on this group of people. And I think that having worked for trafficking for a long time, it can also sort of distort your idea of what this all, is all about. Um, what we have seen uh, from international partners is this uh, uh, advice and warnings about the use of volunteers. And it's, it's only natural because... Uh, of what we saw in the first uh, days and weeks, this chaotic, uh, everybody rushing down to the border areas. Um, and it was obvious from our experience that uh, this should be done not just by government efforts, but by organizations who had uh, experience in the use of volunteers. So the, the warning from my, my minister was, uh, of course, that it should be not uh, up to each and everyone to find out that they were needed in, in Europe now. That, but they should be uh, linked to private organizations and uh, who have vetting processes and, uh, and uh, will also maybe not accept everyone who wants to climb a border. And this is very much in line also with advice uh, with the recent uh, EU action plan against uh, trafficking now concerning Ukrainians, which was uh, released uh, yesterday, where they are advising countries to, uh, to have certain control, to register uh, um, people offering assistance and to carry out security checks of uh, entities and uh, individuals offering accommodation. So this is uh, this then becomes a problem in Norway where we have a high level of trust in people and as has been mentioned uh, in creating risk reducing and preventive measures you have to strike a balance. You can't sort of spread the word that volunteers are really, you know, don't trust these people, they, they, they're terrible predators and, and exploiters. So it's, it's difficult. And, uh, and uh, the way the minister worded it was uh, obviously uh, provocative to some, uh, but also maybe a message that sort of think twice before imagining that your neighbor is fantastic because he has a bus and he goes down to Poland. I mean, it's, it's not necessarily the case. Um, uh, but as I say, it's, uh, it's quite a diverse picture. And um, you had have several questions. I'm, I'm, uh, my ministry has quite a broad responsibility for 
issues concerning the refugees. Uh, my role in it as uh, as uh, in the organization is not sort of uh, to have the overall view and and any political uh, decision uh, on this. So I have uh, expertise in trafficking, and that's that's what I'm I'm here. Thank you very much. And I have some follow-up questions already for, for you both. But uh, I will now give the, the word to you, um, Ms. Fatou, to tell us a little bit more about the work of the IOM in this area. You are based here with IOM Norway, but IOM also internationally, of course, works um, uh, between governments uh, with the, the issue of, of trafficking. Uh, can you just share a little bit more with us about how you work on these issues generally and, and now perhaps... Uh, how you have been um, mobilized in the current context. Thank you so much. I, uh, I will start by thanking the Polish Embassy and uh, PRIO too for this very welcome initiatives and the panelists also. Uh, I'm seeing that uh, we have a consensus at least because we, we all say the same, same language and, uh, and also I'm very, I'm very proud to see that uh, it's just about uh, how do, co do we coordinate now because it's, it's uh, it's a it's a very sensitive and very uh, in, important uh, uh, topics when uh, it's a crisis uh, issue. So, uh, having said that, I think that uh, a lot have been already said by the, the the panelists. I will just share what we are doing at the regional level, and also uh, we. I'm happy that I have also the uh, the the thematic expert from Brussels, who's also from Norway, but she's based in. Uh, uh, IOM Brussels. Uh, she's with uh, with me today also, and then uh, I have also uh, Emil Anderson, who's uh, managing the current counter trafficking project that we have in terms of awareness raising. So uh, they are here also to respond to all the uh, potential questions that can come from the audience. So having said that, I think the the, the consensus that we all have the consensus that the crisis. Uh, uh, crisis situation most of the time exacerbate the, the risk of human trafficking at, at the global level uh, and may give rise to to new trends and also trafficking and and also opportunities uh, to, to seek the to, to exploit the the vulnerable people to to at least uh, uh, um, make them more vulnerable and then also uh, and that can impact in their uh, stability and the, the during the deplacement, of course, but uh, um, we all know also that trafficking was already a phenomenon in in all in Ukraine and also all these uh, uh, surrounding countries uh, prior to the invasion in uh, in uh, in February 22, 2022. Uh, we in IOM, IOM we are deeply concerned uh, about the report, uh, the reported increase in human trafficking. Since the beginning of this uh, of this uh, uh, crisis, and uh, of, of course trafficking and exploitation, because it's not about trafficking only. Um, our added value is that uh, our, in our particularity is that we were already present in this in this region, and we were the the first at least actors uh, uh, who were in the field when the, the the crisis happened, and very active in the field of trafficking. We did have. 
uh, in the past a lot of uh, uh, trafficking projects in, in Ukraine and also in the field of humanitarian. So that's why we are among the first actors in the, in the, in the field. Uh, and also we are providing the first humanitarian assistance based on the well-established uh, uh, prevention and uh, response mechanism that, were, that is already existing. So we, we are just trying to adapt ourselves to the uh, needs of this uh, uh, crisis uh, uh, that are affecting more the women and the, and the children in terms of trafficking. So in addition to the trafficking in human, of course, in human being, uh, the key, it's, it's our DNA. Protection is part of our DNA, I think. So we, 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 we definitely... Uh, uh, we definitely take into account the aspect link, the global aspect of the protection and concern, including the family uh, separation, all these uh, things that can expose uh, to, to violence and also exploitation and abuse, exposed to trauma, the psychosocial needs and, 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 and the gender-based violence and sexual exploitation at, uh, in general. So uh, I think the, the main... Our main involvement in this crisis is uh, uh, we work with the front line in, con in the field of the counter-trafficking intervention. And, uh, uh, of course, related to this Ukrainian crisis, but even if we had this uh, very good uh, experience and strong, uh, well-established uh, uh, mechanism, we have a, a regional counter-trafficking response plan based on a, a global protection and also a, a focus on some a specific aspect. For example, we have the direct assistance in all the region out of Ukraine also, which is, the re which is uh, uh, based on registration report uh, and the report of potential victims, uh, safe transport, providing the safe transport in terms of capacity building and uh, providing shelter and accommodation to identify victims also. And uh, uh, providing the most important things, which is the, uh, the, the, the psychosocial support, which is, very, which is a very important uh, uh, aspect of the traffic uh, and uh, the uh, exploitation. So, for example, in IOM Poland, we, uh, our, our colleagues uh, have six mobile, what we call the MHPSS uh, teams. Prov they provide the mental and, and psychosocial support. Uh, to the victims and mainly in reception and facilities uh, mm -hmm. in Warsaw and also around and the border areas, mm -hmm. which, is also, which is also part of our DNA because it's all about how do we strengthen the capacities to those actors to, mm -hmm. to better identify, to, to help uh, the victims to report and so and so. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the, other, the other aspect is the advocacy and communication, which is very important also. In, in the in in the crisis management uh, period, uh, and we have what we call a national toll-free migrant advice uh, and counter-trafficking uh, hotline in Ukraine, which is also uh, we are trying to to uh, to have the same uh, initiative in other countries. Also, uh, we have the new awareness raising materials on countering child trafficking, which is very important also because. There is a lot of uh, child trafficking. Uh, I will not give any data or figures because uh, we have to be careful when we give uh, this uh, kind of uh, uh, information 
particularly when it's not yet confirmed. Mm. Uh, so um, we have uh, a distribution of uh, leaflet uh, on safe migration in tips, mm -hmm. uh, trafficking in person, mm. and the GBV uh, awareness uh, uh, at the border, at all borders with, uh, with the Ukrainian uh, borders. So uh, we have also the government-run shelters, birth centers, uh, uh, and passengers of the green corridors, what we call the, the, the green corridors. So the, we, we produce a lot of uh, information and, and materials uh, that are dedicated to Ukrainian newcomers uh, in all these uh, uh, countries to inform on the risk, the risk of ex exploitation and abuse and also of uh, the existing services, their rights, so they are well uh, informed and well uh, aware of what uh, uh, what should they do, who should they talk, and also, and so, and so. So in the field of the training and capacity development, we, delivering, we are delivering currently uh, 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 counter-trafficking training to a wide uh, variety of uh, actors, border guards, police agents, uh, transport workers, and, and also volunteers and reception uh, uh, facility staff. Uh, this is what we are currently doing here also in the field of the counter-trafficking. Yes. We have also the convening, convening and dialogue. Uh, that helped IOM also to be among the, the, the leaders in the counter-trafficking uh, and third uh, country national working group mm. in, 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 in all these countries. Uh, and uh, we have the groups in Poland also, Poland, which brings together experts and, act, uh, and actors and also the res in the respective uh, uh, field to map the state of, uh, of, of play of the, the perspective uh, of, uh, of these groups. Mm. There is some discussion that happened in, in, in following some topics of uh, mutual interest between the government and the actors, mm. of course, and, uh, and to propose solutions and to be actively uh, participating in all uh, existing task force. Yeah. So uh, these, there is networks and platforms uh, that exist and uh, most of, uh, and, and there is a lot of working groups also. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, what we, we need to know also is that uh, I heard, I think one of the panelists who, were, who was talking about the, uh, the TCN, the third national countries, so mm. uh, they can be also sometimes more vulnerable than the, mm. the, 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 the those who are already eligible to mm. yeah. uh, to, to this uh, protection. Yes, so absolutely. we need to to avoid doing this separation uh, at yeah. the borders, and we are trying to strengthen the capacities, the existing capacities, uh, to the agents to, for them at least to, to 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 know that they have to even if they, there is mm. a the separation of the, the two groups, mm -hmm. we have to, to know how to address yep. uh, each of them. Yep. So it's all about humanity, of course, first, mm -hmm. and protection. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the last aspect that I will raise is that uh, it's linked to the, to the fact that uh, we already start uh, doing a, a, a kind of a, a collect of information with the, with the volunteers to see how we can also provide some capacity building and strengthen their capacities and also uh, through the, the me existing mechanism yeah. uh, to allow them also to be yeah. well aware of yeah. the, uh, all these uh, protection need, in needs, even if they want to be very uh, among the, 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 the actors. Yeah. It's a good, I think it's a good, very good uh, initiative also. Yeah. 
and uh, I, I, what I'm seeing in Norway is it's, it's really quite uh, very impressive to see how many they are, so, but they need to be coordinated. So yeah. it's our role as uh, uh, organization and UN agencies to provide this, uh, this uh, expertise and also to, to, to be sure that uh, they are well aware of what they should do in trafficking, in human trafficking. So... Um, uh, the last point. I think we will. Uh, we don't have so much time left, and I very much appreciate all your your very useful points here. Also, connecting up with uh, the other points of the previous panelists. We also want to open up a little bit for discussion or questions from the the audience. So if you can keep your point and, and you can bring it back afterwards in the discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. I will. Uh, while you prepare, uh, we're also welcoming questions from the audience. Um, uh, and reminding you that we are uh, recording this uh, seminar, so please introduce yourself uh, before posing your, your question. But while you think or prepare your questions, I wanted to, to, to do one brief follow-up for, for you, and, and if, if you, Guri, and Eddie have, have uh, other thoughts about this as well. Uh, it relates to precisely this interplay between seeing this energy and willingness to, to help, and you have the or organizations already doing this and the networks that are already official ones that you, you refer to, Jan, that these are the ones you would like to also support, but, uh, but maybe discouraging more the, the private initiatives. But to take the current situation as an example now, there is a large, I don't know if we should call it large, but there is a Ukrainian diaspora in Norway, in a number of other European countries. And uh, I also know that the Belarusian um, diaspora has mobilized for... Uh, for the situation in Ukraine and to wanting to help out. Um, and these are maybe not uh, previously organized uh, as an organization, but they may provide crucial help uh, to, to the first uh, um, arriving in Norway or other European countries. So how can we, in a way, to, to come back to the key topic here of, of our discussion, how can we both both facilitate this positive energy and important, uh, crucial first-line aid of those who already know the language and have the networks, while at the same time um, not allowing for, for um, unsupervised <laughs> assistance in a way, or assistance that goes just under the radar and where, where people then are out of reach of, of, um, yeah, of, of the most important um, networks. So if, if one of you want to respond, if, if you would like to start the spin-off, and then I'll call it. A very important, I think, uh, question because we tend to think that, uh, you know, it's the refugees and it's us. Us who provide the help, them who need the help. But no, they can actually help us provide the help. And this is what we are doing because also in our projects in Greece, in Bosnia, we include what we call community volunteers. This is refugees themselves who can help the situation. And this is very helpful from the point of view of the language, definitely, of the building of the trust, but in situations where something happens and it's most noticeable by a person who is of the same uh, country, of uh, the same language speaks. Uh, so definitely uh, this is what we do. We include uh, also the refugees in our work. They're volunteers themselves going through all, as I said, the routines that our normal volunteers uh, go through. Um, and I, I can mention also here, as you mentioned in your introduction, that uh, we recently started also a project here in Norway, in Skoyen. It's called the uh, Ukraine Hub Skoyen. And uh, again, it is to provide uh, a lesson also, English or Norwegian, and a free shop uh, to the refugees from Ukraine. And there also, we include uh, Ukrainian refugees in our work. Thank you. 
Well, we, we, we are in a very dynamic situation. I mean, things are changing every week. Um, and uh, for, for the authorities, it has been important to build a framework, a structure around this. So all these, these uh, regulations on allowing temporary protection measures, on, on uh, making changes in the law so that all the normally integration measures are not uh, obligation anymore, but uh, are just a right, so that the language requirements and so on are, are, are uh, different. This is important, and we have been doing uh, quite a lot of work on um, mainstreaming information from the authorities. So the, through the, our coordinating unit for victims of trafficking, also present, mm -hmm. and all the directorates involved, they have been working very closely together to find out what message do we want to send uh, so that the information is coherent from the official point of view. Uh, and it has been decided that uh, uh, warning against trafficking as such is not very productive. That it's a broad approach mm. to to uh, watch out for people who want to exploit you or pressure you or, or ask you for things you do not want to do, uh, because um, these uh, these authorities in the maybe in the the longer run there will be a larger. Uh, threats to to uh, for sexual exploitation for grooming children this this is things that will come down the road um, instead of immediate trafficking concerns yeah. so this is a, this has been a sort of a first stage in in developing this and then how to present this message to the refugees has been has been difficult you asked about um, uh, how we are working with other countries I come from the same meeting as Eddie now with uh, our colleagues in the ten uh, Baltic Sea States uh, countries. Uh, we presented uh, since the invasion. We have been exchanging ha information materials uh, so that we could build on each other's experience, and with a critical approach to our culture compared to other countries. How do we produce our information? And we showed them a, a film. We were very, very proud of it, with a female Norwegian police officer in uniform, explaining in a calm voice to refugees about how the police could help them and so on. We thought this was fairly brilliant, and many of the partner countries said that you know you can't use police to to set people will not be mm. feel safe if there's mm. a police person talking yeah. to them. And we respond, well, we that might be the case, but you're in Norway now, and we want to also get the message across that uh, a uniformed female police officer speaking calmly to you is someone you should trust. Yeah. So I mean, you have to yeah. you have to find a balance here between yeah. what you want to inform and how you want to inform. It's difficult. And I think everybody agrees that this is so dynamic. Mm. We, do, we don't know enough about the situation now. We are early days in many ways. A lot has been done. Mm. And all the, all the authorities are very willing to sort of, let's mm. see next week if we change yep. track and do something else. Yep. Because we, we, we are open to, to uh, uh, our own insufficiency when it comes to grasping yep. the whole situation. Absolutely, and then that I think is an interesting point coming back to this, how, how do we communicate and reach out to those who need this information? And you also underlined your different efforts and campaigns to, to reach out uh, very, very specifically to, to these uh, people fleeing uh, the, the war um, now, uh, most concretely. Um, before, would you like to respond a little bit to this? Yes, yeah. and then uh, we take some questions. I think also it's a valid point. Should I raise up? Uh, yeah, uh, valid point. Um, about the volunteers. I think we have to think about the different phases that we are in here. You'd have the spontaneous phase where you need the volunteers because they're able to mobilize so quickly. And the Ukrainians, 
in Norway have been extremely important in, in getting their relatives here and helping and getting people out, of course, have played an important role. But hopefully now, it seems like we're going into a different phase. Uh, the rivals are going down and it's more controlled and the government is, is there. And now people are moving out to the municipalities. And hopefully there should be a very limited role for the NGOs now, because now the municipalities should have systems for receiving. They should go into the public support system, just like you and me, and get what they need in the municipalities. The role of the Ukrainian organization should probably, though, be one of advocacy and information and making sure that the refugees know their rights. Uh, but beyond that, hopefully, there shouldn't need to be any other roles for them. Exactly. And, or, or, and then knowing also some of these volunteer organizations, they may transition into other types of roles, being more in the integration, so supporting being the, the social network, helping in the integration. But indeed, where the public system takes over this uh, essential help. And yeah, hopefully that that is that is how we <laughs> how we hope for it to be. Uh, we will now take some questions. So Vera, if you can give it to Miss Ambassador from Poland first, and then we have another question afterwards. Thank you very much. Ivana Wojcikowska, Polish ambassador to Norway. Uh, first of all, thank you very much to Priya for being so enthusiastic about this discussion today and to the presidency, Norwegian presidency and the secretariat of CBSS to enable uh, what we are doing today. Uh, first of all, I have maybe two remarks that can provoke hopefully some more discussion afterwards. Uh, first is subsidiarity. We strongly believe that as in all other aspects of the EU in a way, also in this case is very important. Every actor has its own role in this process. And at the beginning, it was very chaotic because it was unexpected. There was a lot of people coming and so on. But now we see a structure that is growing and we should uh, take advantage of this structure. And of course, it's the government usually that provide that, the international organizations and so on. So it's one thing. But something that I was missing in, in maybe the discussion uh, until now, it's listening to the migrants. And for us, it's something essential. 60-70% of the migrants that are in Poland, the refugees from Ukraine, they, they do not want to go to other countries. They want to stay close to their home. And we have to be sure that we can manage to enable that process. So as a hosting country, we rather uh, would require some help on the ground and not only speaking about, about you know, uh, sending the migrants somewhere else, because this is not the problem. They are in Poland, they want to stay there. Why? Language similarity. That's first. They want to be close to Ukraine. They still are in this phase. They believe that the war will be ending next day. And then they will be able to, so, you know, afterwards they will be able to go back. Of course, we know now that it will take longer. But we have to, I think, also allow this process to the migrants that already have this trauma from the war and other things happening in between to make sure that we all really listen what they want. Because then it will be an effective also process of helping them how to help them. So that's why we enable, for example, kids to go to school. And it has its challenges. They, for example, write in Cyrillic, we write Latin, okay, but we manage. <laughs> we try to also use the um, 
women power, I must say, of those arriving, because many teachers are among them, many psychologists, many people that can help the community that is arriving. So in that sense, I believe we should really focus also as uh, member states, as uh, the ones that are receiving all, the, all this inflow, on how to help the best way, using volunteers, yes, checking, definitely. Uh, so more coordination and, and maybe this, you know, kind of shift towards listen really what are the needs. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Then I think we will collect one more question here. Um. Thank you. Uh, my name is Silvio Gipa. I'm the deputy head of mission of the embassy of Romania. So I would like to thank you, uh, the uh, embassy of Poland. A little bit closer, I think. Uh, I would like to thank you, the embassy of uh, Poland and to PRIO for this uh, timely event. Uh, as of uh, yesterday, Romania, as a neighboring country, uh, entered uh, more than 900,000 Ukrainians. Uh, so uh, it was a challenging uh, time for, uh, for, uh, for us, but we had to, to take uh, uh, steps in order to cope with this, uh, with this situation. And uh, I'd, I'd like to say that um, uh, local, um, uh, temporary local protection and uh, integration is very important uh, uh, in this regard. And uh, Romania took the decision uh, to allow all Ukrainians to work, to study, and uh, to have access to the health uh, system. Not only those who have uh, applied for the asylum uh, status, but all Ukrainians. Uh, because uh, you were talking about volunteers, uh, we were um, uh, working very close to, um, to the international organization IOM, UNHCR, but also with NGOs and volunteers. And uh, we took the decision to, to register the volunteers in order to have a better monitoring situation about uh, them and helping Ukrainian citizens. So uh, they are helped to help Ukrainian citizens. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much also from, for sharing from, from your country's um, experience in the last few weeks. Since we are almost uh, at the end of the, the provision time for this seminar, what I will propose now is that each of you have time for one, one closing remark uh, responding uh, to these questions um, or other things that this has sparked to you, but not more than one minute per panelists. Thank you. And we'll continue this exchange going Cynthia, forward. So please. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think uh, the, the most important thing has been already said, and uh, I, will, I will follow the, uh, the Polish ambassador uh, wish that we could, uh, if we, we can talk more with, uh, with the migrants and the refugees, it's, it's where we can have the concrete uh, reality to address the question, because uh, um, we all know that uh, what we are supporting as uh, support is based maybe on the global view that we have on the on the crisis mm -hmm. but the real needs should be known first because uh, it's about how do we answer to these uh, needs but uh, we have to identify the needs correctly and to address them correctly in view to have a, a very uh, and uh, very um, open and uh, comprehensive response, humanitarian response mm. uh, from both sides, inside of Ukraine and outside. Mm. This is my last word, and we are here to, to, to mm. uh, it's a cross-cutting issue, yes. 
and we need to join our efforts and to coordinate and based on the existing and established structure, we can, I think, give, provide a very uh, comprehensive and good response. Over. Yes. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you very much. No, over to you. I think uh, I'll second Guri in that uh, the municipalities have a lot of responsibility now because we do have structures in Norway built for, for refugees. There are more and more refugees being transferred to the municipalities. Uh, there has been given uh, information to the municipalities from uh, from all the directorates in the field about what to look for, warning signals for both uh, trafficking and other other risks, and um, and the municipalities are recognised as having uh, the, the best opportunities to to uh, find out about the situation people are living in, especially the healthcare services, where mm -hmm. we recognise that many of the refugees will be. Uh, receiving health service, uh, if they don't meet others in the municipality, they certainly will. So it's uh, it's recommended that they strengthen their efforts to try to see uh, people in need, people in distress, and uh, and uh, pass them on to both the relevant authorities, but also the assistance, the, our our private assistance organisations, which are mentioned in the information we we give. Uh, Caritas, uh, Rosa, the, we have established system. Mm. There's a lot ready for yeah. a crisis in Norway, even though uh, it's of course difficult with the with the amount and the uncertainty we yeah. are in at the moment. Absolutely. Thank you very much. No, yes. Been oh, yes. Sorry for yes. <laughs> Thank you. No, I would like just to agree with emphasis on what has been said that we listen to the refugees. We should listen to the refugees and we should listen to the needs and not necessarily to the time of the crisis. That's my point here because we associate, yes, voluntarism with the crisis situation, emergency situation, but it's not only that. It's a little bit like the media spotlight. When you have a crisis, all media is there. But what, what happens after the media leaves, you know, and what is the situation? Still, the needs are there, and still the mobilization should continue according to the needs. So this is a little bit of my side. Thanks. Thank you very much, Despina. Now, final comment to, to the two of you. Thank you. Um, I would like to comment on the Polish embassy's uh, representative's comment, because I think... Uh, I think you have, are very right. Uh, most of the Ukrainians would like to stay in Poland uh, and hope to be. The question is, can Poland, how many can Poland sustain in the long run? And I think that will be very interesting to see in the next couple of months and maybe even years, uh, what is going to happen? Because millions of Ukrainians entering the labor market in Poland is going to be a challenge uh, no, but that's uh, hopefully not, because <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, because of course, with l lots of Ukrainians entering the labor market, there will be types of vulnerabilities. Maybe not human trafficking, but definitely there will be labor issues, labor social dumping, uh, or or even trafficking uh, problems of and competition for labor in the labor market. So it will be, um, and maybe also. When we come to August and September, you will see new movements of people because, because the situation in Poland is going to be challenging and the labour market is going to be a little bit pressured. Uh, so um, it will, I think it will leave it on that to see what will happen. Thank you very much. Two things that came to mind. It was a very interesting discussion. It felt like I was in the audience and just listening. So that was interesting. <laughs> but I thought of the vulnerabilities. This is something we came back to all the time. And I really want to 
kind of make the remark that vulnerability is nothing it's not something that is constant this is something forever changing uh, the vulnerability of a person depending on you know what stage they are at being a refugee is one but i really don't want us to underestimate how big this vulnerability um, can be um, and I really think we need to have this long-term thinking. This was uh, mentioned by the ambassador very clearly um, because we should not expect... I mean, it never works like that uh, in the context or in the as a result of armed conflict that as soon as you know the shooting is over, to put it like that, people return. Uh, the Ukrainian infrastructure and several you know societal um, aspects uh, of the Ukrainian society has been demolished and may take years to rebuild again. So we need to assume that people will say, not only in Poland will they have connections, you know, to people, but in Norway, in Sweden, because we should not forget the human factor that life happens. People fall in love, people find a good job, you know, and so on. So, um, yes, the EU uh, Mass Protection Directive is, we all agree, is has mitigated many potential challenges we might have seen. But uh, this is what we have for now. We don't know. In a few years from now, we don't know uh, where Ukraine is. And I think um, at least our member states should take a proactive approach, not be reactive, but really prepare for the fact that some of these persons might want to become citizens eventually. Not some, but quite many, to be honest. And just very shortly, we developed in the CBSS in connection to the Syria refugee crisis guidelines for long-term labor integration of refugees and migrants. And this is also something I want to highlight, that there are many findings because this is a very serious situation, but we have seen aspects of this before, especially in relation to how we are supposed to integrate as states and such. So use findings from, you know, publications and research uh, that has already looked into this aspect, because in these guidelines we included the needs and the stories of uh, Syrian refugees themselves. So this is a very good point. Thank you. Thank you very much to all of you for these uh, very useful and thought-provoking uh, comments and, and shared insights. Thank you, everyone, for coming. I hope this discussion is, or I know that this discussion is a discussion that we will continue to have, and I hope that this discussion here has been also useful for everyone here working on these, uh, these matters. Thank you so much for coming, and have a nice afternoon. Thank you. Thank you.